everybody, and welcome to our podcast called Connecting Through Commerce, powered by Aramex. Over the next couple weeks, we will be dabbling with some interviews of some business legends. These business legends are either going to be telling us amazing stories, casting visions of the future, and just trying to set the scene for what is no doubt a very, very exciting next couple of years in the world of commerce, e-commerce, and traditional retail, and omni-channel, and all these other things in between. Join us, and I'm sure you will spend the time well. So welcome to Aramex's first ever podcast. I'm very, very excited to be here, yeah. and it's great to start with such an esteemed, seasoned business strategist um, to look into your crystal ball today. So we, we want to understand the insights on commerce, not just e-commerce, and this idea of digitalization. So Jonathan Cherry, welcome. You are the founder of Cherry Flavor, a boutique strategic foresight consultancy that focuses on helping clients apply tools and methodologies for better long-term decision-making, right? And I see you've got quite a long list of qualifications. So I remember you doing your Masters of Philosophy in Future Studies. Um, I know you've now got a membership of the Association of Professional Futurists. You've got 16 years of experience in the industry. And the only thing I really want to know is, have you come, is it true that you've come from the future to help us? Thanks, Noel. Yeah, it sounds so formal. Um, yeah, it's, I think that's the, the perception that people have of futurists, is that for some reason they, uh, you know, they have the ability to predict what the future is or they have a crystal ball. That's, that's not necessarily the case. And I think um, that's, that's what future studies is all about, is kind of making sure that you have no, uh, you have no uh, sort of visions of grandeur that you're going to be able to predict the future. Because actually, predicting the future is quite dangerous. Because if you say this is how the future will look, uh, that's a singular view of what the future may look like. And uh, we all know that that is not uh, ever the case. Uh, the future is very much uncertain and it's determined by the interaction of all sorts of changes which are happening now and changes that will happen in the future. So I think that's what future studies is. It's about assessing what those forces of change are and how are they going to affect us over the long term. And more importantly, how are they going to affect us, but then how do we make better decisions in the face of that better understanding? Uh, but it, it's to be sure it's, it's not about having clarity as to exactly what the future looks like. It's just having a broad uh, overview of different scenarios that certainly could play out, uh, being cautious of the ones that are the ones that we don't want, and then the ones that are more preferable, putting action plans in place in order to get us towards that future that, that we want. So that's what future studies is. So I, I picture the Clem Santa kind of right. quadrants, and, and yeah. I guess he's he's made a name for himself with that view. Is that similarly well in, in any future studies? Yeah, look, I think Clem Santa is South Africa's most famous futurist. He calls himself a scenario planner, mm. but uh, he is a futurist. That's what futurists do. Um, mm. They look at signals of change in the present, and then they determine which of those signals will have the most impact and which are the most uncertain. Uh, and then what they do is that they select those two and they put them in a two-by-two two matrix, or futurists love a two-by-two two matrix. And then the idea is to create stories or scenarios or narratives as to how 
those four futures might play out. And I think Clem Santer is famous because before South Africa became a democracy, he led uh, the conferences that really looked at the scenarios for South Africa. And there were some very important people and, uh, that were in those sessions. And I think based on the stories that were created as to what South Africa might look like, there was then urgency to choose a future for the country which was uh, not a civil war. It was not where everyone lost. It was a democratic rainbow nation. That was what the vision was that was chosen. And he helped create that vision and then through the powers of collaboration, everyone created the country that we now have today. So he is yeah. South Africa's most famous futurist, uh, I would say. Uh, and I guess if you have a loud that. enough voice in that, you can bring about some degree of, of, of not quite prophetic, but, uh, but you're bringing about a change by getting enough people to understand the risks well, of, of bad change. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because it is, I suppose, about having some people having a loud voice. But I think real change happens when you have a lot of different voices in the room and everyone is able to contribute and, as they say, co-create that vision. Because if everyone is a part of creating a vision of what the future looks like, they feel that they have some ownership in it. They've got buy into that future. And if it's your vision as well, then you're also going to be part of making that future mm. come about. And that's really the, the, the other work of a futurist is to gather people into the room and to almost allow their voices to contribute to that story so that they feel it's a part of their vision too. Uh, because then you don't have to go and sell it to somebody. They've already bought into it from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's where real change happens when people buy into what the future looks like and they help create it. They're, yeah. part, of the, they're part of the creation of it. And that's obviously like the positive side of it. Um, I've been doing a course lately and it's been talking about, you know, pre and post Brexit and, the, mm. you know, the different future that was painted mm. before and the mass sort of panic and hysteria. And the reality is obviously super, super different. Right. Um, and that's maybe slightly more the, the negative side is mm. when the medias or however can get hold of it. It's, it's amplifying yeah. bad signals. Right? Yeah, well, I think that's a classic example of someone with a big voice who was able to project their personal vision yeah. of the yes. future and to sell that yeah. on a mass scale to people and people bought into it. They never really questioned it. They yeah. didn't look at an alternative future. Yeah. And that's really the challenge is that I suppose uh, people are very quick to believe in a story and not challenge their own assumptions as to where that story comes from. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that is where what the world is facing. It's the same as what happened in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. I think people believed in the Donald Trump story. They didn't question. Yeah. Uh, they didn't question his motivation. They didn't question where the story came from. Wh what were the facts? Uh, what are the alternatives? They just believed in an ideology and they just went for it. Yeah. Um, and that's the challenge about big voices. It, it's this amazing, you know, you, I'm teaching my kids subjectivity versus objectivity. And it's, it's, a, it's a sad reflection on the fact that we've basically forgotten how to be objective. And, and media takes us in such subjective views mm. or directions. Um, it, it's tough navigating all of this. Yeah, and I would argue pre-post COVID scenario as well, you know, yeah. because this, this COVID's been another enormous uh, yeah. kind of hype 
machine, you know, whichever side of it you sit on, mm. making sense of what it's going to be like afterwards is what's going to happen afterwards. Sean? <laughs> well, just to get back to the point that you made, I think that it's a reflection of the kind of thinking which is predominant in the world. Mm. And that thinking comes from our education, educational yeah. system, where as children, we are taught that there is right and wrong. Uh, here is a question, there is one right answer. And we regurgitate that right answer because that's what the teacher wants us to, to give back to them. There is a, there's, there's almost no education in critical thinking. Uh, there's almost no room for creative thinking. Mm. Because what does creative thinking do? Creative thinking says, yes, there is, there is a school of thought which is analytical, it's very logical, it's very linear. And there is place for that. I think if you are designing an aircraft, you don't necessarily want a creative thinker to design an aircraft. <laughs> there are ways that an aircraft works and you design according to, to the science. Uh, but in the world, uh, we have adopted this level of analytical thinking to be the truth. Yeah. And we think that the world runs according to a trend line which is predictable. But what we're realizing now is that the world is very much interconnected. A change that happens in Wuhan, China, in one uh, market can affect the entire world. It can affect society, it can affect our economics. And in a very short time frame. Exactly. The other thing. It's not kind of a step change that you see from one generation to the next. Right. Or a slow change. Now that's a wild idea. Yeah. And when that happened, some people said, oh, Bill Gates predicted it. Bill Gates didn't predict anything. What Bill Gates read was he read reports that have been uh, published for the last 10 years where they said there is a huge risk of a global pandemic because of climate change, because of population growth, because of urbanization. There is a risk. And he just said, listen, it's one of the top 10 risks in the world. Let's just take note of this. And yes, it happened and it will happen again. Uh, and other big risks will happen again because of the interconnected nature of the world uh, and because of you know, our inability to necessarily look at these risks and to connect them <laughs> with where we are. You know, we think that the risk is somewhere else. Yeah. It's, not, it's not my problem. So future studies, I presume, used to have a bit of a timeline and you could say you know, within the next five years, mm. these sorts of scenarios may play out. That must be changing radically as well because the the, the pace that change occurs mm. and the number of variables are all going up i mean the, how quickly do you i guess the question would be how how quickly are you having to reevaluate your your future scenario thinking to keep it tracking reality yeah look i mean that's a that's a really interesting question because yes there are time scales with regards to foresight where you need to determine what timescale is relevant for the project that you're working on. So if you're working in technology, if you're working in a tech startup, then yeah, you need to be reassessing the, the, button, yeah. the forces of change that you are tracking daily uh, because it changes all the time. But if you're in uh, government then and you're looking at policy change, your time horizons will be a little bit longer. Mm. Um, you know, as much as things are changing so radically, also they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Human beings are human beings. They always will be human beings. Uh, we know that uh, there, there are things that 
are, are happening, which I think will have a long-term time horizon. So there, there are three major forces of change that I think all futurists are looking at now. The first one is, as I suppose this discussion is, is all about, is about uh, digitalization and artificial intelligence mm. and the rise and impact of technology on business. That's a radical change. And as you say, that change is accelerating uh, and it's exponential and the impact of that change <laughs> is radical. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not looking at that yeah. from a business perspective or as a futurist, then you're missing a huge thing. And the hype cycle's pretty hectic. I mean, AI, you know, I only have to talk to Siri to realize that I don't have too much to be afraid of AI taking over the world right. yet. Yeah. But depending on what you read, AI's already taken over the world. You know, yeah. so so businesses yeah. who don't know any better are likely to nervously jump the gun almost and kind of please guys write AI nonstop and you know, yeah. just push onto machine learning. Right. So that, that sort of hype engine there is also relatively new. Right. right. And also it's about saying, right, there is this thing called AI, there is, this, uh, there is this powerful technology change. It doesn't necessarily affect everybody. Okay. You know, if you're selling Cook Sisters at the market on a Saturday, how is AI affecting you? I think it would be interesting for you to maybe creatively look at how you could yeah. leverage AI if it's applicable for you. But I think it's vastly different uh, for you than it would be for somebody who's a retailer. Uh, who's not, you know, who doesn't have a, a exposure to e-commerce, you don't have that capability. Well, I think then you need to create some urgency around maybe understanding what the impact yeah. might be and possibly understanding how it might contribute to the vision that you're trying to achieve of, for your organization. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the big thing. So that's number one. That's okay. number one. Okay. The second thing which I think is really interesting is the world's has an aging population and I think in Africa we don't necessarily see that as much because the African continent mm. has the world's youngest population I think the average age of um, of Europe. the African population mm. is 18 or 19 years mm. old that's the average age in Japan it's in its late 40s in in Europe it's also like late 40s so they have an aging population now you might go oh well aging population so what so what does that mean what that means though is that in North America in Europe in Japan these are the economic powerhouses mm -hmm. of the world they have uh, a workforce that is retiring yeah. they have a workforce that is not necessarily innovating they're not necessarily coming up with new ideas uh, they're also, as they head towards retirement, they're getting a little bit more fearful because exactly, and the world is looking increasingly uncertain. So if you're feeling that the world is looking uncertain, what do you do? You close the you door and yeah. you make sure that you keep, keep the others out. You know, we don't want those people here causing a disruption. So you close yeah. your doors, you go for things like Brexit. You think that somebody like a Donald Trump is, is a good idea because he's going to make America great again. Mm. Uh, so there's a level of conservative yeah. thinking which is, which is happening in the world. Um, and because of that, um, economic growth in those areas is stagnating. Mm. Now, the world's economy is built on the idea of growth. Mm. Uh, you need to have a certain level of growth year in and year out for the entire thing to work. If you have no growth, then what on earth are you going to do? So now we're seeing situations where you have negative interest rates. Mm -hmm. You have Federal Reserve banks that are 
pumping money into economies to try and stimulate the economy. But that's not a long-term solution. What you need is you need more innovation. You need more growth in order to uh, allow people to get jobs and to be prosperous and to participate in this economy. And if you don't have that, <laughs> you've got serious trouble. So, so on point two, because I know there's still a point three coming, right. quick sidetrack. I mean, mm. the effect of globalization on that, which effectively transcends borders and right. you know, countries stop being these sovereign entities that mm. can close their borders. Right. I mean, where does that fit in? So I guess e-commerce, I mean, to take as an example, has quickly shown how trade can occur. Yeah. I mean, cryptocurrencies as well, as an yeah. example, quickly crosses the borders and, and suddenly has that changed things? I mean, is that just another thing of the, the future is coming and we're scared of it? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's such a great point because I think there's nothing wrong with globalization globalization within the context of a global economy that works with each other and is interconnected and there is free flow of information and inf uh, and goods and services and people and all of those mm. good things is a good thing mm. uh, because then value chains can shift to the most efficient most cost-effective regions instantaneously so for global commerce I think it's great the problem is is that when you have a situation of globalization uh, and people are not necessarily all on board, not everybody has the free access to information or free access to, the cap to capital like some people do, well, then you have an imbalance. Mm. Then you have problems. Mm. Then you have regions of the United States where generations of people have been mining coal and they still want to mine coal, but the world has moved on to renewables mm. Well, you know, hey, where's my future? I, I want to carry on mining coal mm. or I still want to make torches yeah. uh, in Sheffield in the UK. But now the torches are being made cheaper in China. So yeah. who, the, who on earth are these Chinese people? Yeah. Like what? They're taking away my future. And I guess that's why yeah. Yeah. we started off talking about this shared vision of the future and everyone buying into it, which in theory works brilliantly. But what you have to have is that everybody buys in, yeah. everybody progresses yeah. along the same trajectory, everybody participates in this marvelous future, mm -hmm. um, which is available. But as we now know, there's certain people that go and sit at Davos in Switzerland, mm. um, and they decide that globalization is great. Mm. They decide that uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of these things are great. Um, but the real challenge is, is that not everybody has access to the same thing and that causes that imbalance. So I don't think globalization is a bad thing at yeah. all. I just think in the context of where the world is, it causes a disruption for people. Yeah. I mean, the point was driven home. I, I drove through Paketburg not that long ago and we were looking out the window, it's dusty and dry and you know, kind of question got asked, what do you think these people do? Mm. And it's a great question. I just hadn't thought about it. 20, 30, 50 years ago, they would have been making farm equipment. They would have been making fertilizers, whatever it is. I mean, it's a farming area. Yeah. They're probably not doing that anymore because now you'd be buying the, the industrial kind of best from right. some other country and you'd be bringing in bulk loads of the best fertilizers. And what are these guys doing? They're sitting around not able to compete anymore. And it was, I suddenly went, hmm, globalization. Mm. This could be a problem. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, the people who are in Paketburg do not have access to a future. Correct. 
um, because they don't have access to an understanding of how the world is changing. So what happens is that they are um, still locked into the future which was in their minds when they were kids. And their future when they were kids were, you know, when I grew up and I'm going to work on the farm. Mm. But stuff changed around them. Uh, the context changed. The world changed. But they didn't change with it. Mm. And I think that's why creative thinking uh, is so important and critical thinking and being aware of how the world is changing and how you might be able to contribute in a more impactful way as that change happens. So, mm. yeah, I, I had the same situation when I went to Lambert's Bay. Mm. Uh, the same, there, there's an old factory in Lambert's Bay which has got the tallest chimney in the town and it looks like Yo, when all of the children in that town grew up, they looked at that chimney and were just like, one day I'm going to work at that factory. That factory is gone. You know, the fishing yeah. industry yeah. is gone. It's been commercialized um, away from those people. And now they sit with nothing. So what are they going to do? Um, they only know one thing, unfortunately. It's quite sad. Yeah, it's very sad. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm, I'm feeling mm. emotional listening to it, this. But it's very sad because I think the what the world and I suppose we're looking at a, a small group of people but I think the same applies for the whole world is that we just assume that the future will look very much like what it did in the past yeah. but the systems that we have are not necessarily working and what we don't understand is that we can actually redesign and recreate those systems to work better for the future which is emerging uh, but what it takes is a collective effort to say listen stop this is not mm. this is not working mm. um, let's redesign it so that it's purpose built for where we want to go not hinged on the legacy which we've inherited mm. which no longer applies um, which requires <laughs> consensus right I mean that that's a further problem you've got to bring a whole community or a whole group of people together to right. agree on some new direction and that's incredibly difficult yeah. because you've got to change people's minds yeah. they've got to let go of the beliefs which they hold on to their identity it's kind of like, I'm not a big fan of English football, but I kind of imagine it, it to be like as if you go and speak to a Liverpool supporter mm. and try and convince them that they should rather be a Manchester United supporter. It's like, they, they won't do it because I believe in this, yeah. in this story and now you're telling me to change my story. Yeah. That is incredibly difficult. John, we, we, we're miles off piece here, but that's fine. <laughs> it's been really good. You had yeah. three points and we've gone through two of them. Right, so let me get to my third one. And then I'm going to actually get to it. <laughs> okay, so, so the third major global change that I think we're all aware of, but to what extent does it impact the future, is climate change. Mm. Um, and we know that climate change is a major issue, and we, we choose, I suppose, some people choose to um, address it in their own personal way. They might be vegan, they might recycle, they might, do, they might make better choices. But I fundamentally believe that climate change is something which is not only going to affect society, but it will affect, affect business. It'll affect how business is designed for the future. It'll affect how, what people buy, how they buy. Um, it's, a massive, it's a massive issue, which I think is accelerating faster than what we believe it to be. When do you think it will become every man's problem? I mean, right now there's there's a, you know, you've got the, the tree huggers and you've got the guys who've been campaigning forever, like Greenpeace. Then mm. you've got 
the recyclers. But there's a there's a large denial of things still going on. And I guess a uh, next to denial is apathy. Like, well, mm. whatever. Yeah. I mean, how long do you think we're talking about? Twenty years? A Look, generation? Some would argue that it is already a major problem for everybody. Front of mind, though, for people. Are they acting on it yet? No, because I don't think they're connecting the dots. So this pandemic that we are still experiencing is a direct result of climate change. Um, It's a direct result of the deforestation of the world. So as as humans encroach on Mm. nature, there are all sorts of pathogens and all sorts of things that are locked up in these capsules of nature that as you go in and destroy those things, all of a sudden we are presented with brand new viruses and brand new issues. So I think it's a direct result of that. Another, another consequence of climate change is wealth and income inequality. Mm. Migration is a challenge of uh, climate change. But I think to your point, we haven't necessarily connected the dots between those things and climate change. Uh, we think that the environment is something which is outside of us. You know, mm. we, we conduct our business and the environment is, you know, the, the mountain that I go walk on on the weekend. And I choose to go and yeah. engage with yes. the environment when, I, when yeah. I wish. Because we don't necessarily have the perspective that we are operating within the environment. It's not like something we can walk away from. Uh, it's around us constantly. And as you said earlier, sorry, Christy, the, the, the kind of link to an incentive is not there yet. I mean, we're talking about this outside. The, the, the incentive needs to be a kind of clear and present one for most people to engage right. with. And, and as you said, if the mountain's still far away, well, yes, if it looks a little drier next year. Yeah, and I think that's great insight because what is the incentive that we hold to be paramount in the world? Yeah. The incentive that we hold to be paramount is economic growth. It's uh, profitability. It's, you know, we're, we're wanting to make money. Money is the most important. So if you look historically, how did you make money? You exploited resources. And expanded. Uh, you look at a country like South Africa. Our entire economy is built on the exploitation of mineral resources in this country. The, our economy is driven by mining. It's driven by agriculture. It's about going in and mm. you know, exploiting the land f- for creating value, which then creates jobs. Now we have to say, mm, actually, <laughs> the mines are drying up. You know, you now got to drill nine kilometers into the earth to kind of scrape together a little bit of mineral resource, which you can sell on a global market. That's not sustainable any longer. We need to transition. But why? My parents were miners. Mm. You know, uh, my father was in the fishing industry. Why must I now stop? You're telling me it's not sustainable any longer. And now you want them to buy graphics cards and mine Bitcoin. I mean, it, it's it's such a massive shift. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So again, yeah. people have to, you know, as you, your point is, when does that urgency happen? I think it should have happened a long time ago, but no one is connecting those dots. No one is saying, actually, let's look at the bigger picture. Let's, sta- let's step back and have a look at, uh, the real sort of causes of where we are right now and mm. yeah no one's actually doing that because i guess the the Not problem people is, are listening to these kind of podcasts well i suppose <laughs> the problem is that the people who you know who i don't know some people will listen to this podcast but 
people who are listened to are our politicians and our politicians need to be re-elected every four or five years yeah. so i'm not going to go and talk about something which is beyond <laughs> you know, beyond years, the yeah. scope of of uh, <coughs> of, of the next four years mm -hmm. i need to be focusing on the the present that's why what's very interesting you, we spoke about timelines in future studies some people study futures that are a thousand years into the future now you might think like, well, what value is that for me? I'm running an e-commerce business. Why must I think about a future a thousand years from now? But if you think about the year 3021, I mean, I struggle just to get my mind around the number. 3021, I mean, what is that? Yeah. What does that future look like? Now imagine if you can design Drones, the world yeah. based on the utopian vision that you want for the year 3021. Yeah. And now you go and sell it to your constituents who are sitting in poverty in South Africa. They're going to tell you to go to hell. You know, don't come and bring me that 3021 thing here. Mm. Yeah. I need to eat tonight. I think it links um, a bit to sort of what happened with the, the water um, here in Cape Town a couple mm. of years ago, where everyone played ball because zero was there. Incentive it wasn't, was real. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. fake. It wasn't whatever. It was right there. And right. the problem is, um, if you speak to a lot of the older generations, it's there's been thousands of yeah. droughts. We've all had to do this. And you know what? The rain always mm. comes. Mm. And I think, unfortunately, that is kind of a something we've all inherited from, from our previous parents and grandparents is that the rain will always come, we'll be fine. Right. And so the only way to incentivize it is either policies from government to come in mm. where you get build more to force a different lifestyle, which we built. So our houses are built to, you know, flush gallons of, mm. of water away and not reuse it in our gardens and all of yeah. that. So it is also then an investment from people to do that. And I think until the saving of that investment becomes more than what you're going to pay right. for that, that the, the incentive won't be there. And that's what's scary in, that's very in true. our world. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think just on that point, um, I, you know, I love that analogy that old people always said, you know, the rains will come. And yes, you know, the rains do come. But if you have a situation where you have uh, people who are urbanizing, they are moving to Cape Town. Now you've got the rains, which are pretty much set every single year, but you have a growing population. You don't necessarily have investment in dams. You don't you don't have a reaction based on the foresight that there is more pressure, more demand coming onto the yeah. system. And then that's, that's where the interesting uh, systems overload happens, where that all of a sudden, it's just not that the rains were not good enough. And now all of a sudden the entire thing collapses. Well, because you're uh, introducing variables the whole time. Right. And so it's variables changing beyond yeah. anticipated rates right. and new variables right. coming along. Yes. And, and so, yeah, the rain did come, does come, doesn't spread as far yeah. and, and uh, doesn't get to where it used to go. And yes, it's yeah. about connecting those dots. But, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Taiwan or you've ever been to those sort of Asian tiger cities mm. in the east. But if you want to see uh, a nation, which I can tell you now, 30, 40 years ago, Taiwan was in, they were racked by poverty. It was, uh, it was a terrible place to live. You know, it was a... Their, in, their industry was based on fishing. Uh, they were an agrarian economy. But what happened was that the Taiwanese government 
actually said, you know what, let's have a vision of what the future could be. Let's see where the world is going. And they saw an opportunity in electronics. They saw an opportunity in computing. They realized that the world is moving into an age where machines would become prominent. And they realized that there was an opportunity for them to manufacture into that opportunity. So they set a vision, which was a 50-year vision, where they said, right, Taiwan is going to become the manufacturing capital of the world in high tech. And we are going to make sure that our schools are producing students that are schooled in that way of thinking. We are going to make sure that the government supports business that is able to supply into those value chains. We're going to build relationships with countries like the United States, with Europe, uh, mm. in order to build those bridges and those partnerships. And then we are going to supply into that demand. And that's what they've done. And if you go to Taipei today, it looks pretty much like Tokyo, Japan. It is mm. a modern, gleaming city people, everyone is employed. There's no unemployment problem in, in Taiwan uh, because they had leadership. Mm. And that leadership didn't just say like, I'm going to do it. What they did was they created the policy conditions under which uh, business could thrive in that area. Um, mm. For years, I went to a trade show in Taipei uh, and every year I was always surprised because this massive conference center would be filled with uh, brands and manufacturing entities that would be showing off their products yeah. and every single one of the stands would have a beautiful bouquet of orchids uh, which were displayed proudly and the orchids came from the government and the government was saying here is uh, you know here are beautiful orchids to wish you good luck for signing a lot of business uh, mm. and we support you in that endeavor wow. now imagine our government wishing business good luck in uh, signing deals with international trade partners. It's just unheard of. Yeah. It's like we have this fight. We have, mm. uh, we have arguments between uh, groups that really should be collaborating closely together. There's that sad feeling again. It would be quite nice to get some proteas every now and then. I thought some proteas would be wonderful. But that's the whole point. Imagine some proteas here right now. If you want to create jobs in an economy, well, then you have to have business which is innovating. You need business which is bringing on new value and selling that internationally. Don't just create jobs. They don't magically come. They come as a result of business which is prosperously growing into the future. Anyhow. John, that was a fantastic introduction. Great. Um, <laughs> you can edit that whole thing down. <laughs>